New York, this is Democracy Now! We're here today because it's out of the question to once again raise the retirement age. It's time for them to understand that people also want to enjoy their lives. We're not here to die on the job. We're here to be able to enjoy life one day, too. As many as three million people take to the streets of France as anger mounts over President Macron's move to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. We'll go to Marseille for the latest. We'll also talk to Congressmember Rokhana about the banking crisis, TikTok, and more. Then investigative journalist James Banford reveals how Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu clandestinely tried to help Donald Trump get elected in 2016. There was no collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign, as the Mueller report concluded. Uh, But what was totally missed was the collusion, very extensive collusion between uh, the prime minister of Israel and the Trump uh, campaign. And we'll get an update from Atlanta on the protest against Cop City, those charged with domestic terrorism. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel passed a law Thursday to shield Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu from removal as he faces a corruption trial and massive protests against anti-democratic reforms to disempower Israel's judiciary. Scores of protesters were arrested Thursday during a more massive nationwide protest designed to bring Israel to a standstill, while Israel's attorney general said in a letter earlier today the plan to gut the justice system is illegal. Netanyahu is meeting with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak in the U.K. today. As he arrived at 10 Downing Street, Netanyahu is greeted by a protester, jeers and calls of shame and traitor. Meanwhile, another Palestinian was killed Thursday as Ramadan was starting by Israeli forces during a raid in the occupied West Bank. 25-year-old Amir Abu Khadija is at least the 85th Palestinian to be killed by Israeli forces in 2023, or Israeli settlers. In France, an estimated three and a half million people took to the streets Thursday in a nationwide general strike to protest Emmanuel um, President Emmanuel Macron's deeply unpopular move to raise the age of retirement from 62 to 64. His government forced the legislation through the National Assembly using a constitutional clause to bypass a parliamentary vote. This is a protester in Nice. I'm on strike to protest against the pension reform, but mainly also against what is happening in the government with the denial of democracy, which is quite significant right now. They are not listening to the people anymore, and it's important to us to be here so our voice can be heard and to say what is happening is not normal. If the people are against a reform, they should be heard. After headlines, we'll go to France for the latest. The United States and Canada have reached an agreement to block migrants from seeking asylum if they're apprehended attempting to cross the U.S. northern border into Canada. President Joe Biden, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau are expected to announce the deal in Ottawa today during Biden's first official trip to Canada since taking office. Canada's also reportedly agreed to allow up to 15,000 Central American migrants into the country over the next year. Tens of thousands of migrants have been making their way to Canada as the U.S. enforces harsh 
harsher immigration policies. Advocates denounce the move as Biden's latest attempt to discourage people from even attempting to trek north for refuge. Biden and Trudeau are also expected to discuss the worsening gang violence and humanitarian crisis in Haiti as the U.S. has been pushing the Canadian government to lead a multinational armed intervention of Haiti. The Pentagon says it's carried out multiple airstrikes inside Syria. This, according to U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who said oh, the overnight attacks were in response to a drone attack by Iran-backed fighters that killed a U.S. military contractor, wounded another, and wounded five U.S. troops as well. The U.K.-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights said the U.S. airstrikes killed 11 Iranian-backed fighters in three locations, though those reports could not be confirmed. Congress has not formally authorized U.S. military action in Syria, though last year a majority of both Republicans and Democrats in the House voted down a resolution to withdraw all remaining U.S. troops from Syria. The U.S. strikes came after Israeli warplanes bombed the international airport in the northern Syrian city of Aleppo Wednesday, damaging equipment and bringing flights to a halt. It was Israel's second attack on Aleppo's main airport this month. In other news from Syria, reports emerged Thursday that Saudi Arabia and Syria are nearing a deal in Russian-brokered talks to restore diplomatic ties that were cut off in 2012 as Saudi Arabia backed Syrian rebel fighters in the country's brutal civil war. In India, lawmaker and opposition leader Rahul Gandhi has been disqualified from parliament and sentenced to two years in prison after he was convicted for criticizing Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Gandhi was found guilty of defamation for saying at a 2019 campaign rally, quote, why do all thieves have Modi as their surname? Gandhi was expected to run against Modi in 2024. Back in the United States on Capitol Hill, TikTok CEO Shozi Chu was grilled by House lawmakers for over five hours on the app's ties to the Chinese government, data practices, and effects on children's mental health. This is Democratic Florida Congressmember Darren Soto questioning Chu. So, Mr. Chu, would TikTok be prepared to divest from ByteDance and uh, Chinese Communist Party ties if the Department of Treasury instructed you all to do so? Uh, Congressman, I said in my opening statement, I think we are need to address the problem of privacy. I agree with you. I don't think ownership is the issue here. With a lot of respect, American social companies don't have a good track record with data privacy and user security. I mean, look at Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. This Just comes example. as a number of progressive lawmakers are speaking out against what they see as politically motivated attempts to ban or scapegoat TikTok, saying it's driven by dangerous anti-Chinese sentiment. This is New York Democrat Jamal Bowman speaking at a rally earlier this week. We can keep TikTok. We can protect freedom of speech. And we could deal with the privacy concerns at the same time. We could do both. And right now, we're not trying to do both. Meanwhile, in Utah, Republican Governor Spencer Cox signed sweeping social media legislation Thursday that requires anyone 18 or younger to get explicit parental consent to use apps such as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and TikTok, though it's unclear how this will be enforced. Critics warn the law could cause more harm to marginalized teens and children for whom social media can be a lifeline, including LGBTQ minors who access vital support and information online. 
Georgia and Iowa have become the latest states to enact anti-trans laws. On Thursday, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed a bill banning gender-affirming surgeries and hormone replacement therapies for transgender youth under the age of 18. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds signed a similar bill Wednesday, along with another measure banning trans students from entering school bathrooms or changing rooms that match their gender identities. This comes as World Athletics, the global governing body for track and field, voted Thursday to ban trans women from elite competitions if they transitioned after puberty. Advocates of the anti-trans policy claim trans women athletes have a physical advantage over cisgender women. But science refutes that. A report published in 2017 in the journal Sports Medicine finds there's, quote, no direct or consistent research, unquote, showing trans athletes have an advantage over others. A Michigan court has ordered the parents of the Oxford High School mass shooter to stand trial for manslaughter. Ethan Crumbly was just 15 years old at the time of the attack last November, which killed four students and injured six others. On Thursday, the Michigan Court of Appeals ruled there's enough evidence to bring Jennifer and James Crumbly, his parents, to trial after they gave their son easy access to a gun, failed to inform the school, and failed to stop the massacre despite clear warning signs. Meanwhile, in Colorado, the Denver Public School District voted unanimously Thursday to temporarily suspend its ban on armed guards and police officers in schools. The ban had been in place since 2021, after a wave of protests against police brutality erupted following the murder of George Floyd. This comes after two faculty members at Denver's East High School were shot and wounded Wednesday by a 17-year-old with a handgun. Police say they found the teen dead of a self inflicted gunshot wound. The shooting came just over a month after another shooting at the same school fatally wounded 16-year-old Luis Garcia. That prompted a massive march from Denver's East High to the nearby state capitol. And in California, about 60,000 education workers have ended a three-day strike at the Los Angeles Unified School District without an agreement on a new union contract. The strike prompted Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass to join contract talks as a mediator after district officials failed to reach an agreement with the union following more than a year of negotiations. SEIU Local 99 says many of its members who work as bus drivers, custodians and teachers' aides earn poverty wages of roughly $12 per hour in one of the most expensive cities in the United States. This is Jason Terrell Ronhell, an English teacher at Roosevelt High School and winner of the 2022 California Teacher of the Year Award. I'm a second-generation teacher. My parents taught in LAUSD. They struck in 1989 and walked the line. I'm here proudly in my second strike with my SEIU brothers and sisters. We're demanding a living, living wage for them. They're not asking for a million dollars. They're not asking to be millionaires. They're asked to be lifted out of poverty. And in a district that has a $4.9 billion surplus in the richest state in the nation that pays their superintendent $440,000 a year, I think we can afford it. I think we can show them that they deserve this respect for them and for our students. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in France, where unions say more than three million people took to the streets in a nationwide general strike Thursday to protest President Emmanuel Macron's deeply unpopular move to unilaterally raise the retirement age from 62 to 64 without giving the French parliament a chance to vote on the plan. 
On Monday, Macron survived a vote of no confidence by just nine votes. In Bordeaux on Thursday, the town hall was set on fire. And in Paris, police fired tear gas at protesters who included transportation workers, garbage collectors, teachers, students and more. We're here today because it's out of the question to once again raise the retirement age. You have to understand that some people work in difficult conditions. And today, these people are told that not only do they have to work longer, but also nothing prevents the government in the future to restart this type of bill. It's time for them to understand that people also want to enjoy their lives. We're not here to die on the job. We're here to be able to enjoy life one day, too. As protests continue, a visit by British King Charles to France has just been postponed. Striking workers had said they'd refuse to roll out the red carpet for him. France's eight largest unions have called another nationwide protest for this Tuesday. For more, we go to Marseille, France, to speak with the journalist Cole Stangler, whose guest essay in The New York Times today is headlined, France is furious. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Cole. Can you describe the level of mass protest and disgust in the streets right now throughout France and talk about how this was pushed through? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think there's really two things uh, going on here, if you want to simplify it, uh, as you were just as you were just explaining. You have, on the one hand, this this pension reform that's extremely unpopular j- just on itself, by, on, on the merits. Um, polls show about uh, anywhere from two thirds to, to seven out of 10 French people have opposed this reform from the very beginning. Uh, so going back to January at the very first protest that we saw. Um, they see it as unfair, hurting the, the, the least well-off in French society, disproportionately hurting manual workers, hurting women. Um, so a lot of opposition to the reform uh, itself going on now for two months. We've had this wave of, of, of mobilization, wave of strikes. And then, as you were mentioning, uh, what has sort of energized the movement further is the way that the government has gotten this reform done, the way they've gotten it across the finish line. Last Friday, there was supposed to be a vote in the National Assembly uh, on this unpopular bill. Uh, The government, when they realized they didn't have the votes to actually get it approved in the National Assembly, uh, deployed this uh, constitutional measure that allows them to approve the vote with approve the bill without a vote uh, in in, in, uh, parliament. And so then on Monday, Macron survived this motion of no confidence. So in theory, uh, this bill is is now going to be taking effect uh, there's a couple of ways to, to perhaps block it, which we can maybe get into. But that that the way the government has carried out this reform, I think, has has has, has given the movement new life. Uh, it's why unions have called called for another day of mobilization uh, on Thursday, and it's why we have another one set up next week because people see that as as, as really unfair. Not only uh, is the government trying to do this this pension reform that people see as 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 fundamentally unfair. Um, but they're ignoring uh, historically large protests, even by French by French standards. They're ignoring uh, the opinion polls. They're ignoring moderate labor unions that have said, "Let's negotiate something." Um, and so all of this is is fueling this movement. And, and right now, uh, it feels very similar to, to the Yellow Vest movement uh, back in late 2018, early 2019, where you have this government that doesn't seem to understand the the anger that that it's unleashed. So, can you talk about? the ways where it's possible this would be rolled back, Cole? Yeah, so there's there's a precedent that, that a lot of people have in their minds, which is the uh, 2006 youth employment contract. Uh, at the time, uh, you had mass mobilization from, from student unions, uh, from labor unions, uh, to, to oppose this reform. The National Assembly actually passed this bill in February uh, 2006, 
the movement continued. And then uh, a couple months later, the prime minister, uh, under the guidance of then President Jacques Chirac, uh, thought maybe this was not the best time to be approving this extremely polarizing, unpopular um, uh, law that was creating mass mass protests. And so the government actually uh, d did not uh, apply the law that had been passed. And they actually then uh, the National Assembly passed a law repealing it. Um, so that's one method. That's one route. And that's why we have protests that are continuing. It's why we have unions that are saying, you know, this isn't over yet, trying to give the government uh, a sort of exit ramp if they wanted to deescalate things. That That's one route. The other route, uh, the, the most significant route would be the French Constitutional Council, the equivalent uh, rough equivalent of, of the Supreme Court uh, examining this law and deciding that uh, deciding to invalidate parts or, or all of the bill. There's a lot of questions over that specific measure that the government has deployed again to get this bill across the finish line. Article 49.3 of the French Constitution. Uh, critics say that it wasn't really meant for a reform uh, of this nature. The government attached this massive pension reform to a very particular budget bill, and so there's a, a sort of technical argument to be made that uh, th this article was applied uh, uh, inappropriately. And you know, the, the, the Constitutional Council will be meeting as well amid this, uh, you know, upheaval amid these, these mass protests that, as you mentioned, are not dying out. We have another wave scheduled uh, for next week. Mm -hmm. And who is supporting the president in this? I mean, clearly, overwhelmingly, the population is against this. Emmanuel Macron has a, a base of voters that, that that's very real. Uh, I don't want to you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't forget that uh, the the Macronist base tends to be uh, wealthier. They tend to be older voters. They tend to vote more as well. Uh, we we saw this in the legislative elections uh, last summer. Uh, so you have a, a small chunk of, of of the French population, about a third, according to polls, that supports this reform. But uh, but they're really in the minority. And, and I think if you're looking forward to if we're looking ahead to sort of who's going to benefit uh, from this, I think it's important to stress uh, as well that. You know, if you look at France from abroad, there's often a tendency to to, to look at simply Emmanuel Macron, the president, and then uh, his opposition uh, on the far right. So represented by Marine Le Pen, it should be stressed that Le Pen and the National Rally have played effectively no role in this protest movement. The, the movement is led by labor unions, uh, going from moderate labor unions to more militant uh, left wing labor unions. And it's being led by the parties uh, of the left. I think it's an important point to, to stress here. People that, that sort of expected or, or thought that maybe the French left was dead or that labor unions in France couldn't mobilize anymore have been proven wrong uh, by this movement. You have a mass movement that, that's really that's being led by labor that has shown it continues to have the sort of cultural appeal, um, the sort of power that to, to, to mobilize uh, the, the French workforce. Well, Cole Stangler, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Paris-based journalist speaking to us, though, from Marseille. Coming up, Congressmember Rokhana on the banking crisis, on the attempts from Republicans to Democrats to ban TikTok and more. Stay with us.
Alice Pittoresque, number nine, Menuet Pampo, the Orchestra Nacional de Leon, and Leonard Slatkin this week. Concert goers threw coins and booed musicians of the orchestra as the musicians read out a union statement about President Macron's plans to postpone the pension age in France by two more years. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're joined now by the Democratic Congressmember Ro Khanna of Silicon Valley of California to talk about the banking crisis, the attempts to ban TikTok, um, East Palestine, and more. Congressmember Khanna recently joined Senator Elizabeth Warren, Congressmember Katie Porter, and others to push for stronger banking regulations following the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Khanna has criticized fellow Democrats who supported a 2018 bill that weakened Dodd-Frank, the landmark regulatory reform passed in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Executives from Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were among those who successfully lobbied to weaken rules that may have prevented their collapse. Silicon Valley Bank is based in Rokana's district in California. Congressmember Khanna, welcome back to Democracy Now! What needs to happen, uh, not only with SVB and Signature, but overall? How can the regulations be tightened? Well, thanks for having me back. We need to regulate large regional banks the same way that we regulate the big four banks. I remember when the Silicon Valley Bank executives were in my office in 2018 pushing for deregulation. I voted against that deregulation. I believe that the deregulation was a cause of the bank failure. You would have had liquidity tests. You would have had stress tests. Now, I know Secretary Yellen has said maybe those tests would not have captured the liquidity challenges with the rapid rise in interest rates. First of all, that's a problem with the tests if they're not capturing that. But regardless of whether the tests would have captured that, it would have sent a signal to the regulators to pay more attention to what was going on in Silicon Valley Bank, and that would have prevented the gross mismanagement. Instead, what we said is, if you're one of these regional banks like Silicon Valley Bank, you have carte blanche to do whatever you want uh, without much regulatory oversight. It was a colossal mistake. We need to have those regulations back. On Monday, ABC News reported the Fed was aware of Silicon Valley Bank's problems uh, and they warned them. But what do warnings mean? Where are the concrete regulations and what is your critique of the Federal Reserve and, uh, uh, and Jerome Powell? Well, the critique of uh, Jerome Powell, with due respect, is that he missed the inflation early on and then he's gone from zero to 60 with very rapid interest rate hikes that has created some of this challenge. Now, I don't want to exonerate or excuse the bank management. They were greedy. They were in long-term bonds for a slightly higher interest rate with no hedge on it, and they had large, wealthy depositors with no diversification. So the first blame is with the bank executives, but the Fed's rapid increase of interest rates contributed. And the fact that the Fed had this warning uh, without enforcement was a problem, but that's because of the weakening of the Dodd-Frank regulations. Ultimately, in my view, it's the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC, that's supposed to be regulating these banks, uh, and they would have much more authority if they had Dodd-Frank-type regulations. 
So you have uh, the San Francisco-based bank, First Republic, uh, um, in big crisis right now, being relegated to junk. Um, and so you have a lot of people who are saying, well, we've got to just invest in the largest banks, calling them the most stable. At the same time, you have a massive climate protest this week across the country where people are uh, cutting up their credit cards to these banks because of their fossil fuel promotion. So just asking, you are talking about shoring up community banks. How do you do that now? And how do you tell people that uh, where they're banking, if it's outside the big ones of Citibank and Chase and Bank of America, are safe? I mean, we need to protect community banks, uh, and you're absolutely right. Otherwise, all of the money is going to go into the big four banks, and that's going to be bad for regional economic development uh, or for some of the causes that you're talking about if the power is all consolidated with the big four banks. The first point is, in the last 10 years, of the 73 bank failures in almost all of them, I think in 72 or 73 of them, the depositors have been guaranteed. So in our recent history, depositors are guaranteed. What I have said is that we should say that depositors in this country will be uh, guaranteed, at least for the next uh, year or two. And how are we going to pay for that? We're going to pay for that with a bank fee, a bank premium, and require accounts over 250000 to have a mandatory fee uh, to be able to pay for that insurance. Right now, it's basically like you've got these wealthy account holders, people who have a million, two million dollars. Uh, I analogize them to uninsured drivers. They're out there. They don't have any insurance. If they cause harm, it's the taxpayer that ends up uh, doing the deposit guarantee. We ought to have a mandatory fee over 250000 and then be able to guarantee those depositors. So as we talk about uh, the horrors of capitalism right now, um, uh, I wanted to go to your vote on the horrors of socialism, so-called. Um, in early February, Republicans in Congress had a vote to denounce the horrors of socialism, specifically referring to it in that way. Um, Congress member Hanna, you were an, the national co-chair of a socialist candidate for president, <laughs> right, of Bernie Sanders. And yet, unlike AOC, unlike um, even Steny Hoyer, like Rashida Tlaib, you actually voted to support this to surprise of many. Well, it's a fair question. I have always called myself an FDR Democrat. I have tried to make the case that Medicare for all free public college, universal child care, a livable wage are policies that are not just just, but are that are, that are going to lead to economic growth, that are going to lead to entrepreneurship, that are going to lead to innovation. Every time we talk about child care at $10 a day, the Republicans say, well, what about Stalin? What about Lenin? What about Pol Pot? And that is a rhetorical tactic that doesn't solve people's problems. What I have tried to do is frame progressive principles as consistent with the free enterprise system of the United States, as Hamilton, as FDR did. And uh, that's why uh, I voted that way. But I understand that people uh, also voted a, a different way, and I respect that vote. I want to turn to TikTok. On Thursday, the TikTok CEO, Shozi Chu, was grilled by House lawmakers for over five hours on the app's ties to the Chinese government, data practices, its effects on children's mental health. The hearing took place just days after the Biden administration demanded that the Chinese-owned TikTok be sold 
or else face a national ban in the United States. During his opening statement, the TikTok CEO, Chu, vowed to protect user data of American users. This is what he said. We have heard important concerns about the potential for unwanted foreign access to U.S. data and potential manipulation of the TikTok U.S. ecosystem. Our approach has never been to dismiss or trivialize any of these concerns. We have addressed them with real action. Now, that's what we've been doing for the last two years, building what amounts to a firewall that seals off protected U.S. user data from unauthorized foreign access. The bottom line is this. American data stored on American soil by an American company overseen by American personnel. We call this initiative Project Texas. That's where Oracle is headquartered. Today, U.S. TikTok data is stored by default in Oracle servers. Only vetted personnel operating in a new company called TikTok U.S. Data Security can control access to this data. So that's the TikTok CEO. Uh, word is that um, the House Speaker and Democrats and Republicans are going to put forward a vote to ban TikTok unless it's sold to um, uh I don't know if it's just an American or a non-Chinese uh, corporation. Um, Democratic Congressmember Jamal Bowman of New York wasn't on in that hearing yesterday, but he's been one of the sole lawmakers to defend TikTok. This is what he says. So we're talking about free speech for everyday Americans. We're talking about small business owners who use TikTok to grow their business. And my question is, and we're going to pivot to the other part of the conversation, why the hysteria and the panic and the targeting of TikTok? As we know, Republicans in particular have been sounding the alarm, creating a red scare around China. So. Can you answer that question? You are now on the new Select Committee on China. Are we seeing a kind of convergence right now of an anti-China hysteria, um, as well as this deep concern um, about protecting children? All of this brought out yesterday, but all being laid on TikTok. The Boston Globe has an editorial today uh, saying that the answer is not going after TikTok, but regulating these social media companies. Well, Amy, there are two different points. If we want to protect our young, uh, young kids and teenagers, absolutely we need broader social media reform. One third of uh, American teenage girls have contemplated suicide. One of the causes of that is their addiction to social media, which is like the worst experience in junior high on steroids often. And so I have called for having a standard that these social media platforms need to consider the harm to adolescents and the FTC should be regulating them. They shouldn't be able to have uh, algorithms that get people addicted or that cause uh, mental or emotional harm. That has to be broad based on all social media. But TikTok genuinely has separate concerns and there are two concerns. One is frankly reciprocity. China does not allow Twitter, Facebook, Amazon, Google, YouTube, any American company to even have the slightest entrance into China. So if we're going to have trade, there has to be reciprocity of trade. 
The second point is that there is evidence that TikTok, while they have not compromised American data, have had Chinese CCP officials uh, in the uh, app uh, and prioritized or deprioritized information about human rights with the Uyghurs, uh, prioritized or deprioritized information uh, that the Chinese Communist government wants about sensitive uh, human rights and other issues. What if the Chinese Communist Party were to do to TikTok what they did to Jack Ma or other uh, tech leaders in China? I think those are legitimate concerns. That is not hysteria. I've affirmed the one China policy and I've said that we need to be tough on trade, uh, but also still have dialogue. But it seems to me an unnecessary risk to have the CCP have control in any way over ByteDance and TikTok. You recently traveled to Taiwan, where you met with the Taiwanese president, Tsai Ing-wen. Um, how concerned are you that these congressional visits could further escalate tension between the United States and China, and also the United States pledging hundreds of millions of dollars of weapons to Taiwan? At the same time, uh, President Biden is uh, drawing a line in the sand when it comes to China militarily supporting Russia in the Ukraine war. Well, it depends on, I think, what members of Congress say when they go to Taiwan. I was struck that the president of Taiwan, President Tsai, and the KMT, which is more sympathetic to the Chinese mainland and the TPP, all had converged on a simple policy, and that is they wanted Taiwan to be prepared for its defense. The, they, the Taiwanese have moved conscription from four months to 12 months. They wanted aid with defense from the United States. But at the same time, they recognize that 40 percent of Taiwanese exports are to the mainland of China. Uh, and they wanted an affirmation of the one China policy, which is that the situation between Taiwan and China should be resolved through peaceful dialogue uh, between uh, both parties and then affirmation of the status quo. And my view is, as long as we operate under that framework, as long as we our policy is not getting ahead of Taiwan, then we can uh, still have peace in that region uh, while being uh, strong and, and standing up for the values of democracy and freedom that Taiwan represents. Let's go directly to the Ukraine war, but on Capitol Hill. Uh, peace activists with the group Code Pink repeatedly interrupted uh, the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken Wednesday as he testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This is Code Pink founder Medea Benjamin. The American So that's peace activist Medea Benjamin. Um, if you could respond to what she's saying, where are the negotiations? China has put forward a peace plan. Where is the Biden administration peace plan putting, uh, being put forward? Do you think um, the Biden administration is doing enough to uh, find a way to negotiate an end to this war? I uh, actually respect both what President Biden and Secretary Blinken have done to mitigate the risks of nuclear war. The president has been quite judicious in not wanting to escalate tensions uh, with the Soviet Union. When Putin was threatening nuclear weapons, the president did not respond in kind. He 
has been cautious, criticized by Republicans on the Hill in not having weapons to Ukraine that would be offensive, that would have any risk of getting into Russian territory. Where I think China has missed uh, the, the uh, opportunity for global leadership is they have still not denounced Putin's clear aggression and war in Ukraine. I mean, they uh, have no legitimacy, in my view, to offer a peace plan if they are unwilling to say what Putin did was wrong. And if Xi Jinping is meeting with Putin over 40 times in the last decade and saying he's one of our closest friends and unwilling to criticize what Putin did, that does not give them much of a moral legitimacy for a peace plan. I think where we should have a peace plan is uh, it clearly saying that Putin was wrong. It was unprovoked. Uh, we want to have the territorial sovereignty uh, of Ukraine and stand up for Ukraine. But we need to have at the same time dialogue. And you may have countries uh, like India or others uh, that could be better brokers. Now, India at least has condemned Putin's uh, invasion. Uh, but my view of it is that we have to support Ukraine while working at the same time to keep the channels of dialogue open to have some just peace. Uh, and uh, I was fine and, and supported Secretary Blinken meeting Lazarov in India. Uh, it, it, we should continue the dialogue uh, while saying that Putin was clearly in the wrong in this case. Finally, we just have 30 seconds, but President Biden has approved the massive ConocoPhillips oil and gas development in Alaska. The $7 billion Willow Project expected to produce 180,000 barrels of oil per day, adding some 240 million metric tons of greenhouse gas pollution to the atmosphere over 30 years. You're a Congress member from California. You certainly know the effects of the climate catastrophe, and not just in California. California and Malawi and Madagascar, um, all over the world. Um, your response to this approval? It's a colossal mistake by the administration. It is a carbon bomb. There is no justification for it. It's undermining the very goals of the Inflation Reduction Act, the largest climate package. It is going to be alienating young voters, the very voters that uh, admired the president's uh, work on climate and on student debt relief. Uh, I, I have advocated very strongly, as have many progressives, that this is just a wrong decision, it's a mistake, and it sends a horrible message to young voters and climate activists around the country. Silicon Valley Congressmember Ro Khanna, Congressmember from California, Deputy Whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, uh, as well as on the House Select Committee on China. Thank you so much for being with us. When Thank we you. come back, investigative journalist James Bamford reveals how Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu clandestinely tried to help Donald Trump get elected in 2016. Why don't we know more about this? Stay with us. song by the Palestinian singer and songwriter Rasha Nahas. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. 
As mass protests rock Israel against the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his plan to overhaul Israel's judiciary, we turn now to look at how Netanyahu secretly tried to help Donald Trump win the 2016 election. That's the focus of a new cover story in The Nation headlined, The Candidate and the Spy. Longtime award-winning investigative journalist James Bamford reveals Netanyahu dispatched a secret Israeli agent to the United States in the spring of 2016 to meet with advisors to Trump and offer to share secret intelligence with the campaign against Hillary Clinton. The story is based in part on a series of text messages sent by the Israeli secret agent to Trump advisor Roger Stone. In one message from August 12, 2016, the agent wrote, quote, Roger, hello from Jerusalem. Any progress? He's going to be defeated unless we intervene. We have critical intel. The key is in your hands, the text read. Later, the agent wrote, quote, October surprise is coming. James Bamford writes, quote, while the American media and political system fixated on Russian President Vladimir Putin and his armies of cyber warriors, trolls and bots, what was completely missed in the Russiagate investigation of 2016 was the Israeli connection. No details of it were ever revealed in the heavily redacted Mueller report or in the Senate Intelligence Committee report. James Bamford joins us now from Washington, D.C., author of many books, his latest, Spy Fail, Foreign Spies, Mole Saboteurs, and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence. Jim, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Take us on this journey. Talk about what happened, why we um, know a lot about Russia, um, or at least the uh, a lot is made of in going after Russia, saying it tried to overthrow the 2016 election or spin it for for Trump. What actually is documented here is Israel's involvement. And yet Mueller report, Senate Intelligence Committee, it looks like they knew but just didn't want to talk about it. Well, exactly. The uh, documents I got are from the FBI. There are the FBI affidavit about this. There's documents, uh, uh, numerous uh, quotes from the secret agent, Israeli secret agent sent by Netanyahu, talking about the PM, which the FBI uh, agent uh, indicates uh, was the prime minister. And... uh, uh, lays out uh, a months-long plot, basically, from uh, May of 2016 till the fall of 2016, right up to the election. Um, This was investigated by the Mueller uh, team. It was the Mueller team, the Mueller FBI agents, who actually uh, got a search warrant for the secret agents' uh, communications. And that's what these documents are. These are the basis of that investigation from the FBI and the Mueller uh, uh, team. But all this was redacted from the uh, from the final Mueller report. All they focused on was Russia. And in the end, they basically gave uh, Russia a a bill of health. They said that there was no collusion between uh, Russia and uh, the Trump campaign. Uh, They left out a little bit uh, from the report, and that's that there was collusion, but it was from Netanyahu and Israel. Uh, to the Trump campaign, and it went on for months and months, and and involved uh, providing the uh, Trump campaign 
with secret access to the uh, uh, information that the Russians were picking up from Hillary Clinton's campaign and the DNC. In other words, the Israelis, they have a very, very sophisticated uh, eavesdropping organization, Unit 8200. It's their equivalent of the NSA. And they were eavesdropping on the Russians and eavesdropping on Wikigate, uh, Wikigate and they were and Julian Assange, and they were picking up all this information that the Russians were getting from uh, the Clinton campaign and the DNC. And rather than giving it to the president of the United States, to Obama, uh, which is what an ally is supposed to do, especially one that gets $4 billion a year, um, they instead uh, were giving it to the uh, Trump campaign, secretly giving it to the Trump campaign in order to get concessions from Trump when he became president, and hopefully they were going to help make him well, president. let's talk about that moment, why this was so critical for Netanyahu. Talk about the quartet, the direction Obama and the quartet were going in, and why Netanyahu wanted Trump to win. Well, a key reason he wanted uh, Trump to win was because Trump uh, vowed to uh, throw out the nuclear agreement with Iran that uh, the Obama administration worked very hard on and was very useful to the United States. And uh, Netanyahu didn't like it. He didn't want it. He uh, wanted Trump to uh, get rid of it, and Trump uh, was planning to do that. But he wanted a second thing, too. The Obama administration was putting a great deal of pressure on, uh, on uh, Netanyahu to work out an agreement with the Palestinians over Jerusalem. Uh, which is divided. Uh, uh, the final agreement over Jerusalem was going to be divided between the Palestinians and Israel. Israel wanted uh, Netanyahu wanted the entire uh, city to be Israeli, and so they were putting pressure on the Trump campaign, saying, uh, "Look, uh, this is what we want, and we can help Trump get elected, uh, but we have to have a, basically have to have an agreement that he's going to." help us on this uh, uh, issue over the uh, sovereignty of Jerusalem. And uh, in the very end, uh, that's what happened. Uh, there was a secret meeting, or at least a private meeting, in the uh, Trump penthouse in New York, just between uh, uh, Netanyahu and, and Trump. And after it was over, Trump came out, and that's what he said. He said that— uh, uh, if I'm elected president, I'm uh, going to move the uh, U.S. embassy to Jerusalem and declare Jerusalem the capital of Israel. So um, uh, the Israelis got what they wanted and Trump got what he wanted and the American public was uh, uh, screwed in the meantime. Uh, Jim Bamford, in your piece, The Candidate and the Spy, you write, although the affidavit did not specify any individual defendants, the numerous potential criminal charges laid out in the FBI documents spoke to the seriousness of the Israeli plot. They included violation of the foreign contributions ban, which prohibits foreigners from contributing money or something of value to federal, state, or local elections. Other charges included aiding and abetting conspiracy, wire fraud, attempted conspiracy, Conspiracy to commit wire fraud, still another charge unauthorized access to a protected computer, indicates Israel may have conducted illegal hacking operations. Can you talk more about this? And the man who is the spy uh, in that title of your piece, married to, what, Netanyahu's cousin? 
Well, yeah, they don't name a, uh, the, the spy. The spy's name is redacted. Uh, but there are a lot of similarities with one of Trump's closest associates, uh, Isaac Moho. And uh, he's a very shadowy character. The, uh, he's described as very discreet. And uh, Netanyahu uh, sends him on secret missions, various places. So I just mentioned that that happens to be a very uh, close associate who goes on secret missions for Netanyahu, at least according to the uh, Israeli uh, newspaper Haratz, a well-known and highly respected Haratz. Um, so he's a candidate, but I don't know if he was the secret agent or not. I'm just mentioning him as one of the people that Netanyahu does send out on secret missions. So, um, you know, I think it would be very important for the U.S. government to identify this person who is trying to uh, uh, interfere and, and uh, throw the election uh, in, in favor of Trump. Uh, uh, you also comment that it's not only the United States that the Netanyahu government uh, was involved with trying to interfere with the elections. You talk about Latin America, Africa. Talk about this Archimedes group. Well, uh, just to back up a little bit, uh, just recently, uh, in the last few weeks, there was an enormous uh, investigation that was revealed uh, throughout much of the world, actually. Uh, uh, and it was a, an eight-month investigation by journalists from some of the most respected newspapers in the world, including Haratz in Israel, uh, 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 Pais in, uh, in, in Spain, The Observer and, and The Guardian in London, uh, the, uh, uh, Der Spiegel in, in Germany, and uh, um, uh, French newspaper. Uh, anyway, there, it was an enormous investigation. went on for eight months, and the focus— was Israel um, interfering in elections around the world. And they came out with an enormous amount of uh, detail, including undercover investigations of Israeli uh, uh, activity um, trying to overthrow, or, or rather, uh, throw elections in Latin America, uh, Africa, and uh, according to one of the members of the, uh, of the group uh, in the United States. So... Uh, this has been going on for a very long time. It basically identified Israel as a as the world's center for uh, election interference and uh, or secret election interference. And um, Archimedes Group was one of those companies uh, earlier on before this investigation that was identified as a company uh, that Israel was using to, um, or at least it was a private company with ties to the Israeli intelligence that was using uh, uh, a lot of fraud and other aspects to throw elections in various parts of the world. 30, I think there were 13 countries or something it was involved in. So this has been going on for a long time. Israel's been involved in enormous amounts of covert operations and intelligence operations in the U.S. just in the last seven years. Uh, I, half my book deals with Israeli uh, intelligence and covert operations in the United States. But there is a determination by... All parties involved, the, uh, the administration, Congress, and the mainstream media, to completely uh, use blinders when it comes to Israel. So, finally, while the U.S. media fixated on Russian interference in the 2016 election, another campaign to influence the outcome by Israel went unreported. That was 2016. Now we're moving in on the 2024 election, and you have 
the prime minister of Israel is, again, Benjamin Netanyahu. And again, President Trump is running for president. Your final thoughts, Jim? Well, it's uh, going to be a, a deja vu all over again. It's going to be a repeat, since we have the same players in the same positions and the same media that pay, pays no attention to uh, anything that Israel does that's uh, questionable in the United States and the Congress and the administration that completely turn a blind eye to Israeli intelligence. So, yeah, we're here again, and it just uh, can repeat itself with the same players doing the same play all over again, unless there is congressional investigation or hard-hitting reporting by the mainstream media and uh, 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 further investigation by the FBI. Well, Jim Bamford, we want to have you back on to talk about your book, but we want to thank you so much for being with us now. James Bamford, longtime investigative journalist, will link to your new cover story for The Nation, The Candidate and The Spy. We end today's show with an update on protests against Cop City in Atlanta and a dramatic hearing Thursday where a judge denied bond for many of the people jailed since March 5th when they were indiscriminately arrested at a music festival against the proposed police training facility would be the largest in the country. It's in the Wilani Forest and accused of vandalism and arson at a construction site a mile away. They're charged with domestic terrorism based on evidence like muddy clothes. One of those arrested was longtime New York City activist Priscilla Grimm, an editor of the Occupied Wall Street Journal, whose daughter Sophia told The Independent, we're so grateful and appreciative for all the support we have received. It's made things so much less stressful. For an update, we're joined by Micah Herskin, a local community organizer in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Micah, talk about these charges of domestic terrorism and who is being held in jail and not released on bond. Absolutely. So, at the end of the day, these charges are political prosecution. So 23 people were arrested um, at the Wilani Forest Festival. This was at the very beginning of the week of action. As you said, there was an action that happened about a mile away from this site. And instead of showing up to that site, police showed up at this music festival where people were enjoying music, you know, having a good time and mass arrested people. Um, now, there, ever, ever since March 5th, there were 22 people being held in jail without bond. Um, just yesterday, they had new bond hearings where um, about 12 folks got out um, earlier because on, on consent bonds, which means they didn't have to pay. Eight people were denied bond yesterday, and two people were granted $25,000 bonds. Um, the folks who were denied bond were, you know, not denied bond for any specific evidence other than, as you said, having, you know, mud on their clothes and their shoes, you know, having wet pants. Um, you know, we've seen earlier affidavits and warrants that have said that folks are known members of a prison abolitionist movement. Um, and so at the end of the day, you know, these are really just about trying to repress this social movement that is trying to stop Cop City. And this is a social movement that goes across the spectrum in Atlanta, right? I mean, you've got religious people, you've got environmentalists who are fighting this, you've got indigenous people who are fighting this, and you have people who are deeply concerned about issues of police brutality who are fighting this. And then you have the recent police killing of Tortuguita, um, who was one of the activists, and an independent autopsy just came out uh, that suggested that uh, Tortuguita was sitting cross-legged with their their hands in the air when they were shot. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so, you know, the state has yet to release its autopsy still, even though, you know, we're now months out from this killing. But this independent autopsy showed, you know, Torchigita's mother speaking at a press conference sat down and showed the position that this autopsy found that her child was killed in, which was essentially, you know, looking like this, sitting cross-legged. Um, you know, there were bullets through their palms. Um, and so, yeah, you know, at, the more information that comes out, the clearer it is that, you know, just as these prosecutions are political prosecutions, the killing of Tortuguita was a political assassination where police marched into the forest and killed somebody and then, you know, most likely lied to cover it up. Um, the Independent, John Tarleton, reported uh, that the conditions in the DeKalb County Jail Women's Unit are poor, Sophia said, one of the daughters of those being held, sparse food, overflowing toilets, no personal visits right. due to short staffing, paid telephone, video call services that barely function, transgender SDs being assigned to areas that don't correspond to their gender. Um, the men's unit uh, reported to be even worse, she said. Um, your thoughts and how people are able to communicate? And, you know, we just did a story. We interviewed Ben Crump um, about the 10 people, seven of them police officers, who were arrested on murder charges for uh, killing a mentally challenged man at a hospital in Virginia. They're out on bond. Um, these activists are charged with domestic terrorism and continue to be held. Yes. They're, you know, they're being held. And again, you know, really without evidence during these bond hearings, it was clear that, you know, the prosecution has not yet put together any case. They're, you know, using these fallbacks. You know, one of the examples that they gave was that people were wearing black and that that was evidence of playing on the team, of, you know, being being on the side of the protest. Um, and so, you know, the the charges are all really shaky. There's really no legitimate evidence that's, put, put, that's been put forward. Um, in terms of the jail conditions, you know, right now, this is true across the country, but especially in Atlanta, across the metro Atlanta area, our jails are in absolute crisis. There are jail deaths happening, you know, across the metro area really frequently. The DeKalb County Jail, you know, many parts don't have running water is what we're hearing from inside. Toilets are broken. There are freezing temperatures. Um, and, you know, despite all of that, there have been vigils that organizers have been hosting outside of the jail as a way to communicate with folks inside. Um, shortly after their arrests, um, there, was, there was a large vigil that was planned and things were projected on the jail and folks were able to yell across the walls of the jail. Um, a father of someone who had been arrested was able to speak directly to his child. And so there have also been really beautiful moments of solidarity. Um, and folks on the outside making sure that, you know, we're supporting folks inside. Micah Herskin, want to thank you for being with us, local community organizer in Atlanta, Georgia. I want to thank you so much for being with us. Uh, that does it for our show. On Monday, Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez is moderating an online panel on Chicago's 2023 mayoral race, reclaiming Harold Washington's multiracial coalition. Details at democracynow.org. And a very happy birthday to Nermeen Sheikh. Also, Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a digital fellow. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Gesder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnock, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamar Asti, Joe John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, Sanji Lopez, our executive director, Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, Dennis Moynihan, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo. I'm Amy Goodman.